Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Episode 27, No Time for Tears. In this episode, we explore what happens when we open up to the possibilities of healing that our bodies give us. Trauma can get stuck, frozen, so to speak, in our bodies. But we can learn to release the negative energy if we listen closely to what our body is telling us and rely upon some simple techniques. Just like in episode 26, Little Angel, when we open our eyes to little epiphanies along the way, we can also open our ears to hear things, little insights that give us direction, little guideposts that seem to be like gifts handed to us just when we need them. It might take a look back to make sense and realize the gifts because it's almost impossible for the human body to have ongoing relational awareness while the trauma experience is unfolding. But that's okay. A little awareness goes a long way. So take a deep breath, settle in wherever you are or wherever your walk or travels might be taking you as you listen. And here we go. August 9th, day five. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Rachel, we've had a terrible thing happen. Archer broke his neck, C5, in a diving accident in Cape May. Please pray for us. And I copied and pasted the last four days of family updates in that text to bring her up to speed. It was 8.13 a.m., and I had just awakened to a call from Billy, and for some reason, Rachel was tip-top on my mind as I opened my eyes to reach for my phone. You might recall I had been awakened 45 minutes earlier by Billy's text asking me to bring Archer communion if I went to Mass. It was Sunday. I had rolled back over in my bed to try to catch another few minutes of precious sleep. Why did I wake up with Rachel Wall on my mind? Rachel is another one of what I think of as my summer friends, those I see when I come to Cape May. I'm sure you have summer friends too. You know, the people you see or hang out with just in the summer, in the places or events where you hang out summer after summer, like the community pool or the sidelines of the summer sports tournaments 
or the couple weeks of summer camp where you work or volunteer, or the place you return to season after season, wherever that might be. (laughs) Summer friends. Yeah, Rachel was a good friend and a fun friend. She was special to me for a couple reasons in that we were really professional friends who happened to spend time with each other in the summer. We would see each other a good bit as we worked in the alternative dispute resolution field together. I had trained Rachel many years before in mediation when she was a trial lawyer, and that was how we first met. And it was her first taste of mediation. She got the mediation bug and hatched a plan to take mediation to our chief judge, where she could be the strategist for the use of mediation in our state. She talked our chief judge of our highest court into starting a commission. She never became a mediator, but she was very instrumental in the field, and she was a peacemaker at heart. She and I had also traveled together on some other international piecework delegations over the years. She had retired the year before, and I missed seeing her. Crazy, because we learned over the years that we lived only a couple miles from each other in Baltimore. But it took Kate May and our drinks at sunset time to bring us close Isn't that funny how that is with some friends? I bet you have some of those relationships too. (laughs) It was really sweet because she'd put up with me over the years telling her about Kate May and how we would come every August to this simple life, this little oasis year after year. And year after year at our meetings that would recess for the summer, I'd tell her, that she and her husband should come visit. You'll love it. Well, they finally did. Of course they loved it. And they continued to come and rent the first two weeks in August, a place not that far from ours, like clockwork. Maybe it's been three or four years now. But I guess I realized... I had not told her about Archer, as I think of her as my professional friend. Isn't that funny how we categorize our friendships? Well, maybe you don't, but I guess I do. And I had not thought to include her in my texting to friends. But I woke up with her on my mind, and so I texted I knew I would not be able to see her this summer. I then sent a text to our daughter, Paula, my other big kids, and to other high school and college cousins. Please send a card and care package to Dutch today if you can. Here's his address, West End House Camp, Parsons Field, Maine. We'll bring him home soon. I shared with you what happened after that with my little angel, Mary Ellen McNally, and my drive, where I was transported, almost in a fixated, strange state, from church, 
back to the Atlanta Care Hospital. Since the last time we were together, you won't believe what I found. On my phone was another audio recording from back in 2015. This time, it was another one I did talking to myself. It might sound strange. I mean, it does sound strange. But it was like the old days of when I would use a dictaphone to prepare for my client briefs when I was a trial defense lawyer way back in the day, before computers and the internet, <laughs> if you can even imagine back then. But it really wasn't that long ago. Anyway, back in August 2015, everything was happening so fast. So many things didn't make sense to me. And there were a number of times when I felt like I was going crazy. I also just felt this impulse or a little, sort of like a little soft reminder to write things down. Even the hard to believe things that don't make sense things to record them to document them. I guess I thought they might help me remember and help me make sense of things later. I, I don't know. I don't know why exactly. But it was just sort of a whisper. And it was often. And so I tried to do so when I remembered. And when it was too complicated to write down, or something I was trying to puzzle out, I remember going for my phone memos to talk it out, just like in the old days with my dictaphone. Billy wasn't around for any pillow talk, and I guess it was just a way to remember something I thought was important or I might need to go back to. Funny thing is, I never went back to them but I just found them and I am discovering them like day at a time thing. And that's how I'm remembering this story. One day at a time. Do you use your phone memos like that? Well, anyway, here is one of those times as I drove back from Cape May to Atlantic City Louise note to self for the note. Uh, day five, August 9th. This is a reflection on yesterday and then also this morning at mass. But when I was wiping Archer's face and cleaning it yesterday, it's, it, I just noted how he like doesn't have any more acne. And I know it's really cold in his room, so it's probably getting frozen off and it's dry. Uh, I recognize that his body's not moving and working and he's not working in a hot kitchen all day long. But when James came and actually it was before that, Archer had his eyes closed. I just, I looked at Archer and I felt like oh, he looks just like Jesus. He really, really looked like the Jesus I saw in pictures as a child that sort of 
don't know, like a, like it's like a Roman nose, but it's kind of flat a bit. It's a, it's a little bit different than any of our noses. And I was just like, I remember it was just a passing thought. And then when he communicated to James, you saved my life, his eyes were so big and bright and shiny and not popping out of his head, just more like, like on, uh, uh, and not on fire that they weren't hot. They were, they were, and they weren't glowing. They were, they're bright. It is just, I don't know. I just feel like we're getting lots and lots of signs and maybe because we're wide open to them, maybe because I'm looking for them, but I am looking, but I left Mass. I'm on my way to to Atlantic City right now. And was just left with a couple things. I, I feel like the devil is really strong at work right now. And so we're having to counter that with an equally uh, strong relationship to God. Because our Lord will bring us through all of this. And... I don't want to be fearful, but I want to be alert. And I think that that's the message I also need to tell the children so they don't think I'm a lunatic or losing it. Um, but just, I won't probably add the double part, but just, you know, my loves to be on alert. Be on alert for other people's pain and potential danger. Um, and that you you are an angel of good things um, and that you are an angel of good things. Maybe that's what I will tell them. The other thing that happened for me in Mass is, well, a few things happened. But I was really, uh, when, when we did whatever that part of the Mass is where you open up your hands and it's basically the orange pose and I just felt like I could see Archer. I could see Archer doing horns. So I know, I know that he will. And then I also thought, why, why do I have to say to myself, pray hard, or even tell others to pray hard? I mean, it, it almost is, goes against my faith. I believe so deeply in, in God's mercy and his compassion and his, you know, miracles. I also really know and believe God listens to me and every single person. And I, I know we need to pray all the time and often, but it doesn't have to be hard. And that was an insight for me. And the gospel was, the homily was really beautiful and the importance of amen. I think I want to end, finish my daily messages with amen because that means we believe in in God and then the craziest thing when I got to mass a little late for the 1030 mass and I'm going in the side door as usual and mass is standing room only as usual which is one of the things I love about it and not, not probably quite as there weren't people spilling out the door but the regular standing room and there was about an eight-inch spot on the wall uh, between, you know, two people. Of course, I'm not paying attention. I'm just sort of beelining it because I like to go to the front of where people are standing so I can see the altar and the Eucharist. Anyway, I kind of wedged myself in, and the guy next to me 
ended up kind of scooting around the corner and I felt a little bit bad about that and kind of tucked myself in pretty tight. So mass went on and then I was, I was just shocked because the petitions, one was for Archer Semt. Of course they said Archer Seneth, uh, who had a surfing accident, please pray for him. I, I guess, you know, we all know it wasn't a surfing accident, but I suppose surfing accident captures it all in the water, you know, waves, sandbar, ocean. Anywho, uh, I, I, I just felt the well arise in me again, and I began to just want to wail. And the woman immediately next to me just turned and put her arms around me, and she didn't just hold me. She, like, she, her, our bodies just sort of quaked together in such deep sorrow. It's like I didn't know where she came from, but she was right there all along. And when I unbraced from her, it was none other than Mary Ellen, who had just done a book review for the book and is in our book. I didn't even know Mary Ellen was Catholic. And she was right next to me. I didn't even know right there on that wedge. And then at the end of Mass, I was waiting until people receded and so I could go get a pix to put uh, communion in it for Archer because Billy had the good idea, let's give Archer communion even if we have to, you know, put it up into, into tiny, teeny, teeny, tiny little minuscule bits. And so I was waiting, and the man who had been next to me all along, about 40, had a rosary wrapped around his hand. And I turned to him and I said, please say a prayer for my son. And I was I started to say the boy whom they prayed for in petitions, I didn't say that. He looked right at me and he said, I've just come from Medjugorje. And I just looked at him and said, oh, yes. And it's funny because I just flashed. I'm, I heard Medjugorje, but I flashed Lords, And I said, oh, I'm a dame in the order of Malta. I said, we love Lords." And he said, and Medjugorje. And I said, yes, and Medjugorje, where our mother was, where the, the lady appeared. And you could tell he was just on fire. And he said, I've seen the sun spin. And I said, I believe you. I believe you. Because when you have that gift, nobody really believes you. They think you're a lunatic. And I said, I see it spin too. And I see it now, and so will you. And he looked right at me. I said, yes, today. But you can't do it too, too early in the day. It will blind you. You have to wait. You have to wait until the sun goes down, like five or six, when it's still bright in the sky. He just looked at me. I said, yes, she's there every day, every day for you with that gift. And then he said, I, I'm in the process of conversion. I said, okay. I said, you know, it was wonderful. And he said, I need, to, I need for you to pray for me and for my wife and, so, and for my boys. And I said, I will. I said, and for my son, Archer, who's had a, a broken neck. And he looked at me and he said, when I was 24, I had an injury and they told me I would never be able to use my hands again and I would never have a family. And he said, and he opened up his hands in orange, and he said, look at me now. I just, the man who is right next to me, right next to me, all the way through 
that I just happened to have wedge up in that little six or eight inch space between two people. Mary Ellen and this man, I don't even know his name, but the names of his two children are Christian and Roma, two boys. Oh, God is good and merciful. Isn't that incredible? All these synchronicities, nothing is by accident, right? Mary Ellen, that little man with the rosary wrapped around his hands, gave me sustenance to carry on. And I was so joyful. Yes, I felt I was in another dimension as I drove back to the craziness of the trauma unit. I love that little man who barely spoke English, whom I swear seemed to have been waiting for me to see him. I'm so glad I did. Another little angel. But I was also filled with the sense of being vigilant at the hospital. And I wanted the children to be as well. Yes, be on alert. I did have this heightened sense of being on alert and that there was a danger lurking. I did. Five years later, I honestly do not know if that feeling was related to the trauma experience itself or I was just overactivated to pay attention to everything or if it was truly the work of the Holy Spirit. I suppose it was a combination of both. I do know that shock and trauma throw the body into a sense of hypervigilance. At least that's one manifestation. I think what complicates the trauma experience is that trauma is trauma. And it's not normal for anyone. So there are errors committed everywhere in treating trauma. There are also omissions and calculations miscalculations, because it is very complicated, fast-paced, constantly changing, a moving target kind of thing. And I was just beginning to get a taste of it at Atlanticare in the trauma unit. I could not have articulated that back then. But I want to say that now. Yes, when and if you are faced with a traumatic, catastrophic injury or the fast onset of a serious illness, you must be alert. That is why I share that audio with you. I could not have otherwise known this or realized this had it not been for little whispers I knew to somehow record to remind me 
to guide me. I would have otherwise been in a more passive role, I think. You know, waiting to see what the medical staff said. The experts. But the cracks in the armor were starting to show as I was on alert for the mixed stories from different doctors, mixed messages from nurses, and the mixed emotions that I felt churning in me as to which path we should take. I've had a nose for stories that don't line up, and I also know it's part of confusion, and that's why people work with a transformative mediator without judgment. I was on alert that the experts in the hospital, maybe they were confused, and their confusion was adding to Billy's frustration, and it was also creating some marital disharmony that we did not need on top of everything else. Whom to believe? Dr. Radcliffe had said Archer was stable, his neck stronger than it was before even because of the titanium rods and plates, and that the collar on his neck was there just to remind staff that he had a broken neck and wouldn't have range of motion. But the medical staff, the nurses, were very sensitive and even prickly if we so much as attempted to address one of Archer's needs that involved shifting his body in some way without their very careful assistance with his neck and neck brace. Was his neck stable or not stable? Dr. Radcliffe said it was the severed spinal cord that needed time to heal, and maybe there might be some feeling at the C5 level in time. The assessors who came in to poke and prod Archer for sensation said there was none and would not be. Was it possible he could gain sensation or not? But then Dr. Radcliffe said it was like a dam at C4 and nothing would work downstream. But another assessor said, we just didn't know. Time would tell. Was it possible that downstream worked perfectly and we just had to remove the dam? The pulmonologist said we should prepare for discharge to rehab in a week and Archer would be off the ventilator in days. Another told us he would not be off the ventilator for 15 days because of the 1% per day resolution rate of limited capacity from his collapsed lungs. What was it? It was adding incredible pressure to Billy and me to find a rehab place in Baltimore. We needed to know what we we're supposed to be looking for. What kind of rehab would Archer actually need? How does someone do rehab anyway when they cannot move or breathe? It went on. 
One respiratory tech told us chest tubes are not in for more than a day or two. Another respiratory expert told us they would stay in until Archer's lungs drained, which might be weeks. And Archer was asking me on the hour when the tubes would be removed. Did they cause him stress? One tech said Archer could not feel them. Another tech said they were incredibly painful. What did he feel or not feel? I wanted to know. It was distressing to me that when Archer asked, I couldn't let him know definitively. I wasn't looking so much for a day. I mean, well, I was. Today was Sunday. Would it be this week? But what I really was searching for was not so much a date, but events, hallmarks that I could look for to measure getting closer to our goal. I would ask them, what do I look for? Like, you know, how many cc's of fluid? And I could not get an answer. And I studied those tubes and the three collection containers like my life depended on it. I could hear my mom telling me and my siblings when we were children and so hungry for supper. Is it now? Are we going to eat now? As we'd circle the kitchen stove. And she would say, a watched pot never boils. And she'd shoo us away. I was trying hard not to watch, but it was all I was drawn to do, those collection containers. And then there was the nurse assessor two days ago who said he may have detected a sensation in Archer's left hand, but the assessor today told us Archer had no feeling below his neck top of his chest. I didn't understand. Could Archer be getting worse? Did we do something wrong? I told both of them I thought Archer would walk again. One told me it was not possible to regain from spinal cord injury and walk again. Yet another told me, maybe, which? I was going to believe he would walk either way, but I wanted to know the medicine. You know what I mean? I mean, which is it? It was all over the place. It was stressful. I honestly think I could have lived with Mrs. Semft. We don't know, but these are some things that can happen if we do X, Y, and Z. I just wanted a game plan. I wanted something to shoot for. I also wanted answers. It wasn't just hope for me. It was information so I could then know how to focus my hope. Yeah, I needed information. I think it's part of our human condition to want answers because part of human nature 
is to abhor uncertainty. How are you with uncertainty? Imagine yourself being told by the doctor, I'm sorry, Mrs. So-and-so, your child has a very rare condition that leads to death. And you ask, how long do we have? And you're told, we just don't know. That kind of thing probably would send most people into a tailspin. I needed information and I needed their experience. Something like, we don't know, but in the few cases we've had experience with or the thousands of cases we've had experience with, it's between three and nine months. It might be more, it might be less. Okay, so at least there would be something to focus hope on quite specifically. You know what I mean? And there's the outline of a map of a game plan, right? I realize I also suffer from impatience. How are you with impatience? Like when you take a test to see if you pass or fail a course and you have to wait on the grade or get a diagnostic medical test or exam on a life-threatening condition and have to wait on the result or told your job may be at stake or your marriage may be in jeopardy and you have to wait. I was not very good at waiting very long. But even that wasn't the whole of it for me, for what was really disturbing to me. I think it is more apt to say that I was feeling like information was there, but not being shared, or was there, but wasn't coordinated. I'm not sure. It was just a feeling I was starting to get, and I didn't understand because they were the experts, and we so desperately needed them. Have you ever had that feeling in a hospital? I admit I am not very good at waiting for the time it takes someone to give me information that I know is there and available, but is slow to be shared. And I know I have uh, a little prickly irritation sensitivity myself when I sense information is being withheld. Yeah, that's what I have a lot of trouble with. The discernment was to quiet my mind of suspicion that something was being withheld as to just what perhaps was mismanagement or incompetence. But we were in this well-regarded medical facility. It was confusing to me. And hard as it has been, I have actually learned to live with uncertainty and ambiguity 
vicariously. Gosh, my mediation practice has taught me that related to honoring other people's self-determination and helping them decide what's important to share and give up and encouraging them to share information the other side would need for full assessment. Since well-informed outcomes are good for both sides in the long run. So I guess when important information I need in order to make an important decision is not given to me, well, I hadn't been placed in such a situation like that before or that I could really remember. And I felt myself getting mad. Or at the very least, I felt, I felt a fire in my belly being lit up to get me going, to pay close attention to what each of them said. What didn't I know? And to start asking more questions. I can be tenacious that way. And I can be that way on behalf of clients too. It just didn't feel right to be that way here though. They are the medical staff. I don't know what they do. I'm not supposed to know what they do. That's why they're the medical staff and we're the patient. I have to trust them. But I felt, I don't know how else to describe it, except to tell you that I felt like I was starting to be at odds with some of the staff. It was like I needed to know what they do so I could trust them. I don't know. It was uncomfortable. And on top of all that, it was really cold in Archer's room. It was downright freezing. I didn't understand why it had to be so cold. I'd asked my big kids to please bring a couple blankets and extra sweatshirts. What I wanted to wear was a winter parka, even though it was 95 degrees outside. I regularly asked Archer if he was cold. He would blink very slowly. He was not. He did tell me with great effort. He felt a lot of pressure to breathe, though. Hmm. I wondered what that was about. I asked him if I should get a doctor. It took us a while using the ABC board, and Archer always started his communication in full sentences. He told me the pressure was not new and had been that way. It was just wearing him down. I remember being bothered by that. I felt so helpless. I knew enough to write it down in my notebook, which is why I am able to tell you now, because the notation, quote, Archer feels a lot of pressure when he breathes, end quote, 
was written in the margin for days three, four, and now five. There were not a lot of notes in the notebook except those to make sure Billy had the key points when we did our trade-off. I studied Archer, who seemed to be getting weaker. I assumed it was all part of what they called spinal cord injury. We had so much to learn. I encouraged him to close his eyes and rest, despite all the loud sounds of the monitors in his room. Earlier, I had tried to distract him with something positive and told him about the vision I had during Mass this morning, where he was standing in the Oren's pose. Oren's. You know that word? O-R-A-N-S. Yeah, it's this ancient word Billy found when I was writing our book, Being Relational. And it means a particular posture of standing, what we thought of as a relational stance. Orens. It literally means to stand in a relaxed pose with your arms outstretched, relaxed and easy, palms up. (laughs) We loved it. Can you picture it? I bet you have stood that way when you are most mm, centered and grounded. I wonder what that orange pose means to you. To us, it meant being open, being receptive, being connected to others and to something greater than you. It's a very strong and joyful pose. And Archer knew it well because we had had many family discussions about Orens during the last year when Billy was helping me finish writing the book. All of our kids took a hand at weighing in or coming up with a symbol that would capture that image of that open, strong, joyful stance and feeling. Archer had contributed too to the renderings and drawings. It wasn't easy, actually, to capture that message easily and simply. Maybe you can try. We ended up taking the idea to the designers at Under Armour. (laughs) We did. Their headquarters are located in Baltimore, and we thought they'd get it. You know, they did, though. They did get it, and they liked it. They created a final logo for us. Check it out on our Blink of an Eye website. We call the logo Orens. It's crazy as I share that with you because all those drawings and mock-ups took place just months before Archer was injured. And he had helped us choose the color orange for Orens. I had planned to have an Orens Leadership Institute. It's funny as I think about it now. We never did anything with Orens because, well, the timing of Archer's injury 
changed everything. Our lives changed. It doesn't matter. Anyway, back at mass, when I had that feeling of claustrophobia and like I was separating that I shared with you in episode 26, Little Angel, well, something I didn't tell you, but I was reminded of when I found that spontaneously made audio recording. It was another remarkable thing. It was right after Mary Ellen had caught me and righted me up from falling, and the priest was offering the sign of peace with his arms outstretched. And, well, I looked at him and I saw Archer. I had a vision of Archer in the orange pose. I saw him doing orans, being orans. And I knew he would walk again. So I thought I'd tell Archer. And I did as I sat beside him, trying to keep him positive. <laughs> he seemed to smile weakly. I think I might have to resurrect Orens as a sweet reminder of the relief that believing in something positive gives you, even when you face all odds that it will never happen. I said to Archer bedside, don't you worry, Archer Sempt, you will walk again. And I smiled and locked eyes with Archer. I meant it. I believed it. He smiled back. And then he had this look in his eyes. I don't know what it was exactly, but his eyes were that shiny, bright again. I felt like he was looking right through me to my heart, to my broken heart. And it caused me to tear up. I smiled back. It was tender. But I felt that spigot that held back the flow of tears beginning to turn on. I didn't want to do that, not in front of him. And I quickly turned away, make myself busy. Why is it that we have a belief in shielding our falling apart emotions? It's a very North American cultural thing, I believe, generally speaking. We don't want to appear weak. We want to be tough and in control. We want to be winners. Winners are strong. Winners don't cry. Babies and sissies and losers cry is the cultural message, I think, right? You know, real leaders don't cry. CEOs don't cry. Presidents don't cry. 
But why not? I think crying has been vastly underrated, especially when it's appropriate, when you're moved by something that is very tragic or very tender. It's part of being human. I like a leader who is human, who has depth and compassion. It's not just a machine, not just an object, and not just a titular head. I like leaders who are strong enough to be vulnerable. What kind of leader or person do you like? I think the ability to feel and act on emotions of compassion makes the most remarkable leaders and policymakers and those who can slide easily and gracefully on that emotional spectrum with appropriate responsiveness are the most effective for long-lasting positive change. <laughs> I'd be curious what you think about that. For that matter, I like people who are strong enough to be vulnerable and resilient enough to regain themselves to be strong again. What about you? Was I strong enough to be vulnerable and still be counted on to be a strong mother for Archer? As I felt his gaze on me, and I felt that loosening of something deep inside of me, as the hot tears flooded my eyes quickly and I turned away, I chided myself, don't let him see you cry. Why did I not want Archer to see me cry like that? He turned and fell back asleep, thank goodness. And I felt a rush of different things as to why I didn't want him to see me cry. I knew if he saw me cry, he would know the depth of my concern. But I had a belief that he needed me to be strong. I was his mother. I had to be strong right? I mean, Archer has seen me cry many times his whole life, usually at things that are tender or tragic. I guess I thought that if he saw me cry, neither he nor I would be able to untangle which tears were for tenderness and which or for deep emotional pain, frustration, and confusion. I was scared that if he saw me cry, it might scare him that I was crying at the tragic sight of him. And the tender look in his eyes, which I was, but I was scared he might cave seeing that I could see that no one seemed to really know what to do or the implications of what they were doing or what his body was doing. 
I was so very scared he might give up. It had crossed my mind as I watched him, his body on those long machines. How does anyone have the mental fortitude to fight to breathe when the reward was what? To live where you won't ever be able to walk again or use your arms or hands again? It was just too overwhelming. Despite mixed messages from doctors, even the most grim, I knew we couldn't risk, not even for a nanosecond, Archer giving up. We couldn't. And as I tell you this, I guess I did know how bad it was. But I just didn't want to see it. I mean, I did see it. But I didn't want to entertain what it all could really mean. Okay, Louise, stay positive. No time for tears. But there was something more. Isn't there always? If you have ever been faced with such a dire situation, you will know what I'm talking about. They say, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. That is true. But I do not think it is the whole truth. I had this feeling inside of me mental toughness would not be enough. Please help me, Lord. The thought came to me. Archer needed emotional sustenance. You know, looking back, I think it was just instinctive, motherly instincts, maybe dad instincts too, to not want to leave Archer's side. But I think it was just a little voice that gave me a knowing, an inner knowing, to line up, even against hospital reprimands, visits from friends. There is a reason for the no more than two in a room rule. Okay, I get it. And I knew Archer needed rest, but he really needed a reason to carry on. I was all about encouraging, lining up, and ensuring visits from friends. And not just any friends, but Archer's friends, his good friends. There was a direct connection for me. Friends equal hope. Thank you, Lord. I had prayed his friends would come to see him, to keep him hopeful, to occupy his mind with something to look forward to. I thought those visits would be enormously emotionally sustaining, for sure. It didn't occur to me how much courage, though, 
I was asking of some of his friends to come. It didn't. All I could think of is that it's emotional connections as much as our breath that keep us living. Yes, emotions have all kinds of practical purposes. But you know, I didn't know what the other side of the coin was for his friends. Gosh, Archer had good friends. And they had texted they were coming to visit him. I knew they would. I felt like my prayers were being answered. Three hours to drive for a few minutes of visit, and then three hours to drive home? That's a lot of love. Thank you, boys. Thank you, Lord. Luke Granger came right away and showed up at Atlanta Care that day. I've introduced you to Luke. You might remember the baseball toss story he had texted to me just the night before last. Well, Luke was a year ahead of Archer, a rising senior in high school at the time. I had texted him to come any time, and he wasted no time. While his visit was unexpected this morning, it was very welcomed, regardless of what I thought would be, and I had told Billy, a day of rest. But rest, there are many things that give us rest besides sleep, aren't there? Luke had arrived while I was still at Mass in Cape May, so I missed him. But I talked with Luke afterwards, and he shared that it was hard to see his friend. He also told me it was very tough to see him and to stay strong. He said he so wanted to be strong for Archer. I told him I did too. I wondered why, though, it was that way for Luke. He's a thoughtful kid. So I asked him, and he told me it was because it was unimaginable what it must be like for Archer. And he then later told me it was too personal for him to tell me much more. I got the sense that he felt that all of his tears would only serve to make him feel really bad, which wasn't going to help anyone. And he had to almost protect himself too to not go there. Okay, so there was no time for tears for Luke either. I imagine some of you can understand that. Well, five years later, I had the chance to interview another one of Archer's friends, Mike Detterman from Baltimore, who came to visit. I've introduced you to Mike before, as he was an old grade school friend of Archer's. Here's an excerpt of the look back and the discussion of his experience seeing his friend. <laughs> it's funny how some things can remain so fresh as if it was just yesterday. When you came to see him in the hospital, we haven't talked about that, what that was like for you. Um, when I thought about this before, 
the other day when, when you asked me about this, um, just reflecting back and going to Atlantic Air and seeing him there, I think I felt when I was trying to hold myself together, seeing him, I felt selfish in that I was not, not able to hold myself together when he was the one in the accident. Mm. Does that make Makes sense. I think Mike hit the nail on the head for me. I too felt selfish about getting upset in front of Archer. When I could walk, talk, move around, and breathe freely. And he could do none of those things. And he might not ever be able to do those things. Yeah, selfish. That's a pretty insightful and mature observation for a 20-something-year-old young man. Thank you, Mike. No time for tears then. No place for tears in that hospital room. I wonder if you feel the same way. Mike and I continued our conversation about how hard it is to hold it together. My heart is going out that you've had to have that experience because I, I remember when you came. I just remember trying to hold it together. Right. And, and not being able to. Right. I remember that when you were allowed in and I talked to you in the hallway, I think I said, I think I tried to prepare you like this is going to be hard. Mm -hmm. And you went in and you had to come right back out. Right. Is that what you remember too? Mm -hmm. I'm sorry you had to experience that. That's not something that you should be sorry for. Yeah, I guess. I wish there was a different way of describing that, because you're right. Right. I, I, I could not have changed that. But I, what would be the right language? I, I wish that you had not had to have had that awful experience. I remember what was going on, what were you thinking, what was in your mind? Um, I remember feeling that way and um, my mom was there. Yes. So yes. that was that was comforting. <laughs> yeah. I think at that point we were more concerned with comforting Archer. Yes. Yes, I remember there being, it was quite awkward. Right. How, and, and to know that's what was going on in your mind. How do I comfort Archer? Because certainly me breaking into tears is not going to comfort him. Yeah. That's what I was feeling. It's hard, hard to say, isn't it? Right. You know, I imagine that when people break into tears, it can be a sign of love. Mm-hmm. And also could be scary, I suppose, mm -hmm. for the person who, again, knows that it's his condition that is sparking that kind of a response. Yeah, it's hard to hold it together. 
it is hard to hold it together. It is, especially when you love someone so much and you ache for them so much and you ache for yourself, your loss of some part of them so much. It's so intertwined and you're scared deeply and you imagine they're scared deeply too. It's hard when to cry, you know, and where to cry. When and where is the time for tears when you have a loved one in the ICU in a very, very serious condition? Well, I feel it was a little crazy godsend. But you know what I realized? The when and where for me was that crazy bit of time I had every night driving back to Cape May after the long day. Billy and Dewey had been worried about my doing that so late and by myself with so much on my mind. But for me, it was a little carve out, a little oasis of time and space. I hadn't even realized it then. But my two times a day drives I did in this first week back and forth from Cape May gave me 50 minutes in the morning to think clearly and gear up and 50 minutes in the late nights to not think at all and to just sob and purge. It was a built-in time to decompress, unwind, a fraction of what I was feeling. And while I didn't know it then, it was perhaps a little serendipitous carve out for the beginning of my personal integration journey. To make sense of trauma does take time. Hearing the pain of Mike Detterman's experience these five plus years later made my heart ache again. I realized his pain was just resonating with my own, but I also realized how much my pain has softened and loosened after five years. Mike shared that for him, he hadn't really talked about it. And I could see it was still real and fresh. Trauma and secondary trauma are like that. And when he shared that just our talking about it seemed to make it a little less intense, that made me happy. I then shared with Mike. You know what I wish from this podcast? that you know and that others know that you don't have to hold it together. And yes, there's a time and a place 
but to make sure that we all make the time and the place for not holding it together. Right. And even five years later, there's still a place because in some ways there's enough distance to be able to look back and then mm -hmm. safely be upset, be angry, be remorseful, whatever the emotion is, when it's not so intense. Right. Trauma healing is possible. But we first have to lessen the intensity of the experience. There is a time and a place to hold it together. There is. I'll say more about this in the trauma healing learnings after this story. And there is a time and a place to unwind what it is that you have been holding together. I was not thinking at all about trauma or trauma healing back then. No, I was squarely living in the trauma, experiencing the unfolding and the craziness of our new upside down world. You might recall in episode 25, I didn't see this one coming. I had felt like I was on fire when Billy texted, quote, we need a mediator, end quote. Oh my God, I was shocked and my whole body, especially my chest, was filled with electrical heat. Kind of like what I had felt earlier in the day when I wasn't getting the information that I needed. In the thousands of pages of text messages I tracked as part of the look back to be able to reconstruct this podcast story, I followed the trail of Louise and Billy and the beginnings of our marital unraveling that was evidenced in text messages starting this day, day five. They are not nasty, but they are clipped. They have a quality of just the facts, ma'am. But they're actually stripped of the important facts. It came back to me like a flood. Billy was refusing to talk with me on the phone as our conversations all of a sudden had taken a new turn. We were relying solely on texting at best. Now, every good mediator knows that text messaging is not the forum for heated or complicated conflict resolution. And if you don't know that, you do now. But it was also curious to me, as I sifted through these pages now, to see how Billy's and my texts were also infused by what we both knew professionally, good process. It was a curious combination when we were the ones in conflict and apparently deep conflict. Billy and I were both mediators, 
we were highly trained in being neutral. And we knew and believed deeply in the process of collaboration and dialogue. But all that said, the really crazy part of this day for me was not just that Billy said, we need a mediator, but whom he requested. I looked down at my phone and read those words again. We need a mediator. I didn't know what to do. I wondered, how do I respond to my husband? He was serious. I could tell. This was serious. He would not have sent that request if he were not. And he was refusing to talk with me on the phone. It was all going downhill. Resorting to texts, it was awful. Oh my God, I was burning up. Every nerve in my body was lit up like I was standing way too close to the campfire all of a sudden and I couldn't back away. I sat there, bedside to Archer, sort of stunned and also just noticing how on fire I felt. Why? It scared me to feel that way. What was that about? I laid my phone in my lap and I literally started to tap my chest. Do you know about tapping? I did it to calm my nerves. It's a technique I'd learned at one of my human development and insight conferences many years ago. I had relied on it from time to time when I would feel a little overwhelmed and needed to make a big business decision or something that was troubling me. I often combined it with prayer, asking God to give me guidance. The tapping of the body is restorative. It realigns the energy fields in the body through the meridians of electrical energy that run through the body, <laughs> identified thousands of years ago by the Chinese. I appreciate Chinese medicine, but I didn't do tapping often because I would forget about the technique, <laughs> probably when I needed it most. But somehow, in that moment, it just came to me like I was reminded, tap. I was so grateful because as I tapped, I actually felt a little relief. I knew it was my heart that was flaming, like it was about to get crushed again. And so I gently tapped my chest and I did it for a while. Then I gently tapped my forehead and then the top of my head to help me think clearly. Yeah, you might think that's a little crazy. And my kids used to think I was a little nutty, all these different techniques I would tell them about. But they don't really think that anymore. You need to try it. And I almost said aloud, please, Lord, tell me what I should say as I stared at Archer. 
after a few minutes, I picked up my phone and texted back to Billy. Good idea. I took in a deep breath and no sooner had I exhaled when Billy pinged me back. Pick one. Oh my God. He really is serious. Pick one? A mediator? Oh my Lord, my head was swirling. Who? Who could help us? We're in Cape May. Where would we meet? Where was there a transformative mediator here? How could we both leave Archer? But as soon as the thought, how could we both leave Archer, passed over me, I knew Billy was dead serious. He, like I, would never leave Archer. Oh, God. I guess we were in bad shape. You know as well as I do, it only takes one person in a marriage to divorce. I knew that in spades as a divorce mediator. It scared me. Here are some of our back and forth texting. Me. Would have to be by phone, right? Nancy G.? Nancy Good was one of my senior mediators and dear colleagues. She was in Portland, Oregon. Me again. I think we can handle some of the decisions and we can use email to express ideas on each and see where we end up and get help where stuck. Billy. Rather do it live. Ask her to come to the Cape. I was stunned. He was so serious. Fly her from Oregon to Cape May? Barely a minute later, he then pinged me. Rachel Wall? Oh, my God. Rachel. My professional summer friend, Rachel. Who was in Cape May. Isn't that crazy? I hadn't talked with Rachel since last year when we each saw each other in Cape May, but I had awakened that morning with the thought to text her, to tell her something terrible had happened. Yes, something terrible was happening, and there was no time for tears. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. After this episode, you can play the learnings that go with this story. Episode 27. No Time for Tears, Trauma Healing Learnings. Thank you for listening. As together, we are raising the vibration of the energy field for healing.
You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. For 28 years, Baltimore Mediation has served clients worldwide by facilitating negotiation breakthroughs, believing in their capacity for meaningful face-to-face dialogue. You can learn more at baltimoremediation.com.